The Charles Adler Show starts now. Can't tell you how wonderful it is to be back. Thank you for all the feedback. Thank you for listening to this podcast or watching on whatever platform you, you, you've chosen. I'm about to bring on someone who I've been talking to for the last number of years, only on the air. So never, never off the air. But there's something that happens in podcasting and broadcasting. You get to know someone, and even though you don't meet them personally for cup of coffee or or lunch uh you, you talk to them on the air or on a pod uh, or you, you direct message with them on on twitter and pretty soon you think that this is one of your your best friends so this is the first time i'm actually seeing her for those of you who are watching this uh, you're watching along with me uh, for the first time i get to meet on video on the screen uh jan pruden in alberta jan thank you so much anna for for doing this Thank you so much. And I do hope we can sit down and have a coffee in person <laughs> one of these days. That would be wonderful. So uh, Jana Pruden is uh, Manitoba born, I believe. Is that right? I, I'll, I'll get the fact checking immediately, spontaneously. Okay. Jana Pruden is, uh, is Manitoba born, but uh, she has uh, made her home in Alberta for the last number of years. She wrote for a newspaper in Edmonton, The Journal. But in the last number of years, she's become a crime specialist for The Globe and Mail. And most recently is achieving remarkable success as a podcaster, the True Crime series in uh, podcasting. For those of you who are listening to this podcast and uh, familiar with podcasts, this isn't the first one. This isn't your first rodeo. You know how popular True Crime is and how competitive it is. Well, the uh, the True Crime series that Jana Pruden with her Global Mail colleagues uh, have delivered is actually number one in the True Crime series on Apple. So before we do anything else, Jana Pruden, congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you. So on the one hand, I'm smiling because I'm so happy that a person I consider one of my best friends is doing so well. But on the other hand, there's always another hand. I feel very, very sad about the story that the true crime series is telling about Helen Nasland, who is in prison right now, where you got to do an exclusive interview with her for this uh, true crime uh, series for the for the Globe and Mail. Uh, it's called In Her Defense. Before we do anything else, Jana Pruden, let's discuss in detail who Helen Nasland is and why this woman ended up in, in prison for a double-digit sentence, murder. Yeah, so some of your listeners may have heard of this story. It did get quite a bit of, I guess, coverage and got quite a number of people talking around the country. Um, Helen Nasland is a woman who, in 2017, was arrested and charged with murder in the death of her husband, Miles. And um, he had been reported missing by the family uh, six years earlier, and it was discovered um, had been hidden, uh, his body disposed of on um, some land connected with the property. So she ultimately um, accepted a plea for manslaughter and received an 18-year sentence. And uh, one of the things, I I guess the main thing that that really caught people, Helen and her sons had been victims of severe domestic violence at the hands of Miles. Uh, For for Helen, that was for uh, about 30 years, the entire time she knew him and throughout their marriage. Uh, Very, very severe, life-threatening abuse. And so many people, myself included, were uh, really upset by that sentence and felt it was it was very unfair given all that she'd endured. So um, this podcast looks at um, Helen and her life and her story 
and also efforts to have that sentence overturned or reduced. Is it unusual, Jana Pruden? I mean, you've covered so many trials over the years. That's why you're a crime specialist. Um, is it unusual for a situation where a person is essentially defending herself after a, a lifetime of abuse and she ends up doing 11 years in prison? Because it just seems to me, and I don't have your experiences as far as specific uh, crime reporting, it seems to me that generally the court, the modern-day court, relatively modern-day court, is a little bit more flexible, a little bit more lenient than this. Yeah, well, we certainly didn't see that in Helen's case. 18 years uh, for manslaughter, accepting a manslaughter plea, um, which uh, some experts that we've spoken to in the area of what's often called battered women self-defense, battered woman self-defense, um, say that's the longest sentence of that sort they've ever seen. So um, that is... One of the things that we really um, look into in this podcast, I wrote a, a written piece about this case uh, in December that ran. It was quite a long feature about Helen's life and her experience. One of the things we really do in this particular podcast is dig into how a system that was created, a legal system that was created um, almost entirely by and for men, continues to fail women in some cases, in cases like Helen's. And there has there is a history of juries in Canada um, finding women not guilty, even after they've admitted to killing their husbands, um, based on this idea of battered woman self-defense. And one thing I should say is that, um, you know, Helen admitted in court to shooting Miles in the back of the head while he was sleeping. So um, on the face of it, that doesn't sound like self-defense, but we have clear precedent in the courts of why that is and can be considered self-defense in a domestic violence relationship. So we're sort of looking at areas of the law that have been established actually for many years, um, but aren't always being put into use and certainly um, weren't put into play with Helen Nasland. So if uh, for those people who did not read the piece, if we could just ask some specific questions, and I don't mean to divide one region against the other. I just have this uh, notion that some juries in some parts of the country may be more flexible than, than, than others. Where was this tried? Well, there was no trial. Helen took a plea to manslaughter. Uh, she's from Alberta. This case happens in rural Alberta around Camrose, which is about an hour, just a bit more than an hour outside of Edmonton. Um, and that's another issue, I guess, that's that's worthy, I think, of a lot of discussion around the country, which is, um, you know, uh, the Crown. We see this in a lot of cases. The Crown has a heavy charge against someone. First degree murder is arguably the heaviest charge that someone can face if you're convicted mandatory life sentence, no chance of parole for 25 years. For someone like Helen, um, who was in her 50s, she considered that for her that would be a death sentence. Um, so when there's plea discussions happening, you know, the Crown has a lot of leverage. The Crown, which is the whole power of the government and the state against an individual person, um, there's uh, many people who argue that if the Crown is willing to accept a plea to manslaughter, which is a lesser offense, um, that they should be willing to go to trial on manslaughter. I've also heard some people, um, some defense lawyers telling me that they would like to see someone challenge 
the mandatory minimum for murder. So then we could see a situation where maybe Helen does go to trial. Maybe she does get convicted of murder, but that a jury or a sentencing a sentencing judge who would impose that sentence um, does not believe that in the circumstances a uh, life sentence would be appropriate and that maybe a shorter a shorter sentence would be more fitting and more just given her personal circumstance. It's uh, cruel to always uh, make uh, judgments in, in retrospect, but uh, it, it is uh, a discussion that I think uh, we need to have here because I think everyone is asking the same question that I was asking about jurisdiction of jury, and you're saying no jury, there was no trial, and so people are following up. I'm positive right now, Jana, with was it a mistake? I, I don't mean to pile on Helen Naslin, but was it a mistake not to go to a jury trial? I mean, it is an extraordinary decision that someone would have to make. When you imagine thinking, um, maybe this was self-defense. I was fighting for my life. I truly believed I could never get away without myself, potentially my children, potentially other people dying. Um, But even if you truly believe it is self-defense and people tell you you have a very strong case for self-defense. Her first lawyer, or her second lawyer actually, was, you know, wanted to go to trial and ultimately couldn't continue the case for some health reasons. Um, but when you think about life in prison, truly might mean the rest of your life in prison and uh, versus the gamble of going to trial where you, you might walk out of court a free person, um, but it is a gamble. And um, there was another additional leverage that the system had against the Crown, had against Helen, which was um, her sons. And her youngest son was also charged with first-degree murder. I think if it was just up for Helen, uh, up to Helen, if it had only been her, I believe that she would have gone to trial. I think the idea of gambling not only with her life, but with her son's life um, was too much. And, you know, it, it is, as you say, it's to look back in retrospect, you can see things differently. I think one point that, that I always want to make is, you know, Helen was like in custody. She's in the system. She doesn't fully understand it. It's very confusing. You take them the best advice that you have and there is no simple answer. That's one of the things when she once was sentenced and there was this big uproar um, across the country and, and some people approaching her, telling her she should appeal. She was very, very upset because she she thought she'd done something wrong. She didn't know, if, like, she thought she made the wrong decision. And there really is no right or wrong, but I think that there, we see that that was an unjust outcome. Many of us believe that was an unjust outcome. And that one of the main purposes of telling Helen's story is that hopefully we can help the system and people within the system correct so that it helps other people going forward. Because unfortunately, Helen is not the only person who is dealing with life-threatening abuse in their home. We know this happens around the country. And um, there are many people facing life and death scenarios at the hands of abusive partners. Let's uh, pick up a, a missing link here about the son and the murder charge. What was that about, Jana Pruden? Um, well... Same thing. I mean, his uh, Miles Nasland 
um, who was killed. His body was found. One of the sons had provided information to the RCMP about it. And um, another son was not home, but was charged with accessory after the fact um, for helping dispose of the body. And Helen and her youngest son were both charged with first-degree murder. Um, Helen ultimately um, took full responsibility that she is the one who had killed Miles, but certainly her son was in extreme jeopardy. And, um, you know, as the police, as the police told Helen during their interrogation of her before she confessed, you know, we're looking at your whole family going to prison here. That's what we're facing. And that is what they were facing in the place. Now, more with Charles Adler. I don't know whether the average person has any idea of how much pressure one feels. Not only is one a battered woman for many years, not only is one so battered that they feel the the need to put a, a bullet in the back of the head of the person battering them, but they've gotten help from their kids, and now they're told by the Crown, you better play ball with us or you're all going to jail. I, I just don't think the average person has any idea of how much pressure that puts on a person, never mind a person that has been suffering abuse for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely. I All the way along this story, there's many points where I've thought I, I can't imagine what Helen and her family were going through at that point and, um, you know, the, the pressure of it and the decisions that you have to make are truly overwhelming. And, you know, another thing that I would say is that Helen felt very bad and she felt very guilty. And I think in many ways she felt worthy of punishment and, um, and, and, and in fact, worthy of severe punishment. And one of um, a line that the, the judge who handles the appeal basically says, you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the justice system has to see it the same way. Well, you know, Jana, when, when I hear you, and I, look, I'm, I'm not suggesting that I've dealt with as many cases as you have, but I have dealt with a number of cases over the years as, as a journalist and as a commentator, as a talk show host, uh, radio and television in, in, in several jurisdictions in, in, in two different countries. And many people I've met who are, are battered women feel that they deserve the abuse. It's one of the reasons why it takes so long uh, if if it's possible at all to to get rehab, never never mind someone who has been involved with with the justice system in terms of the potential for a murder trial. So for yours truly to hear the words, she felt she deserved severe punishment. She likely felt that she was deserving of severe punishment for many years. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, one thing we really wanted to do with this podcast, um, I feel like there's there's people who have experienced abuse in their own lives or in the lives of a loved one. You know, there's things that they understand about Helen's situation at a really profound level. And it's amazing how many people have disclosed abuse to me in the course of working on this project, have told me their own stories, stories of their loved ones. And then there are people, those of us, um, or people who may be lucky enough that they haven't had that firsthand experience with themselves or their loved ones, that there's there's some common questions that come up or some common misunderstandings of a situation um, that Helen was facing. I had people tell me early on when I was questioning this sentence, you know, 
Well, she mm -hmm. went to work every day. Why couldn't she just leave? Um, and in general, why couldn't she just leave? And one of the things, um, there's a lot of answers to that question, um, but that's one of the things in the early episodes of the podcast, um, I hope that someone who may have the, those questions, that's, that's totally fine. I, and I hope that they go into it with an open mind and start to see how the cycle of abuse entraps people and makes people feel like they can't get away whether or not they could and honestly i i have run the scenarios many 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 times about helen's life and thinking about how she could get free and um the people who know her i've i've asked many of them you know do you think she could have gotten away from miles without him killing her or anybody else and they all say no so um yeah, I think understanding those cycles of violence and the very real life and death pressures that people are living in and how that affects you over the long term. You know, the, the battered woman syndrome, uh, which is uh, was diagnosed by Lenora Walker, who is an American um, forensic psychologist, I believe, um, in that concept, you're considered a battered woman entrapped in the cycle of violence after really only only two cycles and someone like Helen who's lived in that for 30 years, the effects of that are so profound in your view of yourself and your view of the world. And um, it is, can be hard for people on the outside to understand, but it's very important to understand. You know, I had someone say to me the other day that they didn't, they've never had anyone in, in their life who was abused. And I told them, no, you have no one in your life who has disclosed to you their abuse. Every person in this country knows people who have lived with it, knows people who are living with it. So this is, it, it's a dire issue that we all need to be thinking about. And when we learn from a story like Helen's, I, I really do think it has the potential to help all of us in the future because, um, it, you know, it's a cliche to say it, but domestic violence does not stay behind closed doors. We know these are the most dangerous calls that police go to. We see in mass murders like James Chris, James Smith Cremation, Porta Peak, that there's links to domestic violence by the perpetrators. They have histories of domestic violence. Um, many, many innocent people are killed. Many times in a murder-suicide situation, we see not only the partner, ex-partner, the, the wife or ex-wife, we see children, we see another family member, we see a random person. So it really does affect all of us, and it's dangerous to, to everybody. Devastating. Jana Pruden, I don't want people to make the assumption that she is serving time in prison right now. So let's update uh, people who are listening to this podcast what the status is of Ms. Nasland today. Where is she? Yeah, um, Helen is out on parole. Her um, sentence was reduced uh, after really an extraordinary effort and a true kind of grassroots campaign from around the country that included some uh, important and influential people like Senator Kim Pate, who's done a lot of work with women in the justice system, uh, defense lawyer Mona Duckett in Edmonton, who became Helen's uh, lawyer on the appeal, um, an activist, Matthew Behrens, who's an activist in Ontario, who has a group called uh, Women Who Choose to Live, and then also people from around the country who wrote letters uh, to newspapers, who campaigned on social media, and also who wrote letters to Helen. Helen at one point had 
um, about 80 pen pals who were just average people who were so moved by her story, many of whom shared some experience of abuse themselves and wrote to Helen in prison. And I know that those stories meant so much to her. That support meant so much to her and showed her that she wasn't alone and, you know, that other people um, saw her and saw what she had lived through. And, you know, it was not easy for Helen to talk to me. She did not say yes lightly. She is a person. She described herself to me once as someone who likes to hide in the corners. She doesn't want to be out there. She doesn't want this attention. Um, But when I wrote to her, I wrote to her days after she was sentenced to prison. And I told her that I thought her story was really important and that I believed it could help other people. And that is something that's really important to Helen. You know, other people sharing their experiences of abuse have helped her. And she really wanted to help others. So our interviews were not easy. People who listen to the podcast, um, episode two is pretty much entirely me speaking with Helen in prison. It's very, it's a very difficult episode. And you'll be able to hear in her voice um, how difficult it is for her to open up about things that, you know, she has not told anybody in her life until she told me. Um But I do, I hope that in the end, it has been a good thing for her. I know when she went before the parole board, she was really nervous about it. And we were talking about it. And I did tell her, like, they they cannot question you. It cannot be any worse than the interviews you've done with me. I mean, we spoke, I think our interviews probably would be about nine or 10 hours of interviews, as well as writing letters for you know, months and months. She's the longest pen pal I've ever had in my life. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so, you know, just yesterday, actually, I was, I sent her, I have been getting so much very meaningful email from people sharing their stories and saying how much hearing from Helen and hearing about her experience has helped. And I'm forwarding those along to her. And I know it is not easy. It's unbelievable for me to imagine what it must be like for her to hear these episodes, um, and I, I hope and believe that that it is helping to know that it's touching that her story is touching people. How much time did Helen have to spend behind bars before she was paroled? Yeah, so you're going to ask me to do math off the top of my head. Um, I believe she was in for about two. Well, she went in in October 2020. Then she was, her initial day parole, I think it was February of this year. Of course, it is a process. Um, and she's now out on full parole. I mean, she she does very well on parole. She follows rules. She's not out there getting into trouble. You know, she's not, she had never had any problem with the law in any way before this. And um, no one could foresee her having any issue from here. So she does well. But being parole, on parole is still very difficult, you know, and they could yank you back into prison. It's hanging over your head the whole time. So, um, and, and of course, prison, even if if we talk about, oh, it's, you know, two years, it doesn't sound like very much. Um, and it's not compared to 18 or compared to life, but, uh, anyone who's served time will tell you that, you know, every hour, every day in prison is extremely difficult. So, um, yeah, she is out now, but it, it came at a, a high cost, and it certainly was not um, was not guaranteed. You know, there's a real um, roller coaster. Her defense lawyer, who took it to appeal, 
um, told me, you know, I thought I was a loser. And was <laughs> well, so, so there's no doubt there are people listening who think that it's it's a miracle that that uh, she's free. I, I don't know whether you can answer this, but uh, it'd be malfeasance for me not to ask. In your mind, Janet Pruden, and you know Helen Aslan more than most people, does she feel free? And if not, do you think she'll ever feel free? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a really, a really profound thing for me to think about that um, when she was getting out on parole, the idea of being free truly for the first time in your life. You know, um, she met Miles when she was 17. She didn't have the easiest home life as a child. And, um, you know, her whole adult life, because even after Miles was dead, though, there was a certain kind of relief. But of course, um, she felt very guilty. And, you know, I think she knew that the police could could show up. It could all unravel at any minute. She wasn't she wasn't having a, a truly good time in those years. Um, I think there will be a lot of healing to do. And she's someone who's taking things very slowly. Um, I think she'll probably feel a lot freer after she's done with me. And, um, you know, these podcasts are done and she can she can go on with her life and live like a private and more quiet life. But um, I really do hope the, the best for her and to just live like a quiet, beautiful life that that everybody deserves. Janet Pruden, thank you for, for doing this. Uh, so glad that you've uh, moved from uh, not only writing newspaper columns, because writing newspaper columns is uh, no easy task. It can be very onerous, very tedious, a lot of preparation, especially when we're talking about crime, where you've got to dot all the I's and cross all the T's, but you've now crossed over into podcasting. You're achieving great success. And I still hope, as you know, that someday you'll be writing screenplays because we need movies and and TV series written by by Jana Pruden. Thank you very much for this, and good luck to you. You are always so kind, Charles. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, you're my like biggest supporter of moving into screenwriting or something. So if I do, you're uh, you're getting top credit on my first screenplay. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, you know, I just I really appreciate. Um, you and being able to have this conversation. Thank you so much. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson, twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press, and every day at criermedia.co.